couple of announcements. Sure, I have everything here. Okay, just a reminder that this coming Sunday is our annual congregational meeting, so you need to make sure that you are informed about the amendment that we will be voting on uh, this Sunday. And with events going the way they are, it's timely that we we are doing that. Also, on um, Thursday night, we're going to have two uh, young men who have been uh, serving in the IDF and involved in recent conflicts in Israel, who will be speaking, giving a little report to the church on what's going on. And so Bible class will be the same time, 730. Uh, I'll wrap about five or ten minutes early, give them plenty of time. We'll go till about nine o'clock. And so uh, if you got think about it, come up with some questions that you can ask them. I met them today up at the uh, – they wanted to go – shoot at local pistol range, so I told them where they could go and rent rent weapons and they could shoot there. When they got there, because they didn't have local ID, they, there was some question as to whether they would let them shoot, and after some discussion as to who they were, uh, they let them demonstrate their proficiency in the in, back in the range, and after that, I got a text saying, it's not a problem, you don't need to come up here and vouch for them. So they... Uh, Apparently we're doing fine. So anyhow, that will be on Thursday night. Uh, this week, uh, men's prayer, prayer breakfast. Uh, Dwayne Bohack, Texas representative, will be here. And then uh, also a reminder, if you have a teen, no teen, related to a teen, teen retreat on March 12th to 15th at Sandy Creek Bible Camp. Uh, contact Rick or Amy King. And I have... Their contact information appears, so if you need it, you can come up and get their uh, get their phone number. <clears throat> Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you're in right relationship with God as we walk by the Spirit. We sin and we are, we stop walking by the Spirit. We sin and we're out of fellowship. So we need to confess sin to recover our spiritual walk and our forward momentum. So I'll give you time to make sure you're in fellowship and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so very grateful for the freedom that we have to gather together as Christians without fear of persecution, without fear of uh, arrest, without fear of uh, being put into prison. Father, there are many Christians around the world that, uh, for, which that is, for whom that is not true. And we're mindful of these Coptic Christians who were uh, executed horribly just recently in it's a reminder that in much of the history of Christianity, that has been much more the norm than not. And, Father, that may even be something that that we face in the future if there is not a willingness and recognition on the part of leaders in the West to realize that a religious war has been declared against us, and we need to take that very seriously. We pray for leaders in Congress and leaders and those who influence the president that they would make this clear. We pray that there would be an awakening. And if not, we pray that we might be steadfast and that we might uh, be consistent in our walk with you for ultimately we're not promised a spiritual life of comfort, a spiritual life of ease, but just as our Lord was persecuted and 
was eventually executed, so he warns that we too may follow in those very footsteps. Challenge us as we study your word today. Help us to think through the issues that we are going to be exposing in these early books of the Old Testament to understand your word more fully, not only to understand your word more fully, but to apply it to our thinking about things that are going on in our world today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're beginning our study in in 1 Samuel, and I'm uh, very excited about this. I've been going back and looking at some notes that I had when I taught 1 Samuel some I don't know, 25 to 30 years ago. I'm amazed at how relevant some of the things that I had in my notes are for today because we could see the handwriting on the wall if you were perceptive. Uh, 25, 30 years ago. It's just that we're 25 to 30 years ago further down the slide than we were uh, that long ago. And it's it's also interesting to see how um, the the patterns in the Old Testament are, uh, you know, set the patterns for today. And it's not prescriptive, but it helps us to understand what is what is going on. And to understand what is going on, in Samuel, we have to understand the framework of that time in history and the framework of Scripture, the context uh, of Scripture. And when we look at 1 Samuel, it is an extension of Judges. If you look at your Bible and you look at, Judge, at, at 1 Samuel chapter 1, and you turn back a page or two in your English Bible, you have this little bitty book called Ruth. In the organization of the scripture in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew canon, you had three basic divisions, Torah or law or instruction. The root meaning of the word Torah is not law, it is instruction. Law instructs us as to how to live, what is right and what is wrong. So law becomes an obvious uh, nuance to that word Torah. It has a range, range of meaning. First five books are Torah, law, and they were written by one person, Moses, and they are, they're integrated. They, they work together. They're an integral whole. While they have history in them, they're really not history as we get, once we get into, uh, Joshua and Judges. That's when we get into real, uh, history in the Bible. Judges ends, in just a horrible situation, the last judge is Samuel. We're going to go through this several times because I think it's it's important to understand what's happening at the end of Judges. And Samuel begins to deliver them from the oppression of the Philistines, but he doesn't complete it. He fails because he's a failure spiritually. He's a failure in his spiritual life. He fails to obey God. He is supposed to be a Nazarite from birth. Uh, a Nazarite was someone who took a Nazarite vow, a specific kind of vow, which meant that they weren't going to cut it. No razor would touch the hair of their head. They'd grow a long beard, long hair, and, uh, and, and they would not touch any alcohol, and they were not to touch a dead body. And Samson violated all of those numerous times. Uh, they w- weren't even to touch grape or grape skins. That, it wasn't that they weren't supposed to drink wine. They weren't supposed to touch uh, grapes at all. And yet he goes into a vineyard at one time, and when he when he um, slays the Philistines with the jawbone of an ass, the jawbone is coming from a live animal? Oh, no, no, it's a dead animal. So he's touched a dead animal. Uh, he's he's immoral. All these things, he is just... And, and he's abusive of, of the women in his life, uh, incredibly, which is indicative of, of paganism. And we get into this because there's some really significant uh, things that are, that are indicated about uh, women in a pagan culture, and it's not good. Sometimes you'll hear from the from people today that, that we're just more aware of, of physical abuse and sexual abuse of women. And I, I'll t- we may be more aware, but there's more of it. There, there's always been a certain amount of physical and sexual abuse of women. But it, in a Christian environment, it was minimal. There's always unbelievers, and there's always people who are living on the basis of their sin nature, but it's minimal. You had that even in, in the Scripture. 
But what you see in the book of Judges is that women are treated with honor and respect at the beginning of the period of the Judges when the Israelites are functioning according to the law. But as they got further and further away from the law and were living more and more like Canaanites, the way women are treated as you go through Judges uh, deteriorates. And the role of men and women, males and females, within a pagan culture tends to move towards a reversal. And I believe it's out of a frustration of that reversal because men don't know what it means to be men and women don't know what it means to be feminine, that, that there's a tremendous amount of sexual frustration. And I don't mean that in the sense of the sex act. I mean in the sense of gender frustration. They don't know who they are. The culture has lied to them about their makeup and their nature of, as men and as women and that leads to these various role reversals, and out of that you have an embedded frustration that takes place in the soul because men can't be men or won't be men or don't know how to be men, so they're frustrated, and women don't know what it means to be a woman or the men aren't being men. They don't know how to be a woman, and so they're frustrated, and it dominoes through the culture in terms of how it destroys the marriage and destroys the family, and that's a result of paganism, it's not a result of Christianity. Christianity defines the roles. God made them male and female in Genesis chapter 1 before there was, there, was, there was sin. It's not just a matter of physical bodily distinctions between male and female, but God made women differently from men in terms of their souls. And when that is violated then it dominoes through culture. It destroys marriages, and it destroys families, and it destroys a nation. And we're living that way today. We have two generations of, of young people now uh, from probably the mid-40s on down who think that, that gender roles are interchangeable and that men can do what women can do and women can do what men can do, and we shouldn't have these kinds of distinctions, and it's embedded. If you go to work in any company and you hold biblical, really hold and try to apply at your work biblical views of men and women, you'll be fired. You will be fired if you really understood the Word of God and you stood for those things. You would be fired um, because so many Christians have just bought into the world's ideas, and that's what we see in, in these particular books. But by the time you get to the end of Judges... We have not only Samuel, who Samson rather, who is a womanizer, and he's uh, uh, abusive towards women. He's abusive towards his mother. It shows a tremendous amount of disrespect towards his mother. Begin. Then we get into this a really bizarre situation with uh, Micah, the, the Levite, and the, um, the 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 alternate worship and idolatry that gets set up in in chapter eighteen. Of, uh, of Judges, and then chapters 19, this horrible story about the Levite and his concubine. And notice, if you look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 1, where's the Levite from? He's from the territory of Ephraim. Where is Sam Samuel from? He's from the territory of Ephraim. And, so, and he's also a Levite. We'll get into that more as we get into the details of First Samuel uh, chapter 1 and the fam family background. But uh, there at the beginning where it talks about Alkana is an Ephraimite, that's not talking about his tribe, uh, as we'll see when we get into it in detail. That's talking about his territory. Judges, I mean, Joshua tells us that a large group of Levites settled in the territory of Ephraim. He's also, Elkanah is also listed in a Levitical chronology in, um, in First Chronicles. So uh, this connects together, and, and it's designed that way. So we really have to get into the Judges a little bit. But when you, So when you come to and Judges, it ends not only with this apostasy of Micah, and the uh, sexual abuse and physical abuse and, and total uh, an, an anti-woman mentality that's evidenced in that whole thing with the uh, Levite's concubine, but then you get in this horrible civil war with the Benjamites. Now, what do you see at the beginning of Samuel? You see the same kind of thing. You see uh, idolatry. You see the abuse of the temple. You see 
this role reversal problems that that are related to uh, uh, gender, uh, 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 the role of the genders at, at the beginning of, of Samuel, role of women in Samuel, and how uh, Hannah is is abused by the second wife, and then you also have problems with the Benjamites. What we mi- we miss out on that because we have this little bitty book of Ruth that's sandwiched between Judges and First Samuel. In the Hebrew uh, arrangement, after the Torah, you have the prophets. And the prophets were divided into the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets were Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Notice I left out Ruth. Ruth was part of the writing, so Ruth was in a separate part of the Hebrew canon. If you sat down to read the Hebrew Bible, you would go straight from the end of Judges into the beginning of Samuel, and these connections would be really obvious. But when we read through it in our English Bible with Ruth sandwiched in between, those connections are often often lost. So what we see here is in these former prophets is you see prophetic history, which is the foundation of real uh, of real history, as we'll see. And there is a a contrast between God's view of history and man's view of history. That's why so many people today who are brought up in classrooms where they're taught history from a human viewpoint perspective don't appreciate history. It's boring. It's just a lot of meaningless data that's thrown and thrown at you unless there's a teacher who somehow can tell good stories. Then you're entertained by it. Uh, I had a history uh, teacher taught English history my senior year in high school, and he was a great storyteller. But he was like most pagans. He has no idea why history is there. So I want to start off and point out that over the next couple of weeks as we get into the background in the era of the judges, we're going to be learning about living in pagan relativism, living in pagan relativism. The key verse in Judges is there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So they were living in pure moral relativism at the time they'd rejected God. When you reject God, you reject absolutes. So we we learn from his the history these these well we in the English Bible are called historical books because there's a lot of history there, but we realize that in Israel history is a way of teaching truth. We often think of the epistles as teaching truth, and that's m- more of what I call didactic or instructional literature, where that's the the primary mode. But in history in the Old Testament, that's how they taught. Truth was through history, through the events of history. In contrast, we have a lot of uh, various various statements that we find from human viewpoint philosophers such as Hegel, who said that we learn one thing from history, that we learn nothing from history. Hegel was a a late Enlightenment or early modern philosopher who lived in the late 1700s into the early 1800s, and totally divorced from any view of biblical absolutes. And that's why he can make this observation that we don't ever learn anything from history is because you can't learn from history if you don't have a biblical view of history. A biblical view of history is designed to teach something. And if it's designed to teach something, then you can learn from history. Aldous Huxley, who's the grandson of Thomas Huxley, who was called Darwin's Bulldog, and Aldous Huxley and his uh, brother Julian were uh, strong advocates of humanism and evolution in the early to mid-20th century, wrote in his book, Brave New World, You all remember, said the controller in his deep, strong voice, you all remember, I suppose, that beautiful and inspired saying of our Fords. That's an allusion to Henry Ford, who said... um, uh, you know, all, all history, just one damn thing after another, has no meaning. He said that beautiful, inspired saying of our Fords, history is bunk. History, he repeated slowly, is bunk. That was another thing that uh, Henry Ford said about history. Paganism rejects the fact that history has meaning and purpose. It's just, a, a, it's just one damn thing after another. It's just a lot of events and it is, and history isn't moving anywhere. Because if you don't have a God 
who stands outside of history and who controls history, then it is just random chance because that's it's based on evolution. Everything is controlled by time and chance, and there's nothing significant or meaningful to it. George Santayana, who's another early 20th century philosopher, said those who forget history are bound to repeat it. And so this, all these quotes basically show some, that some of the human viewpoint perspectives, but it's true. We have to learn history, though, as an absolute. Now, Santiana didn't believe in history as an absolute, but, but the Bible presents history as an absolute that from a divine viewpoint it teaches absolute principles. So as we get into our study of 1 Samuel, we have to go back and fit it into its historical context in the book of Judges. And that gives us a background for understanding uh, understanding the history of the Old Testament. And sadly, so many people in our culture are weak in history, and they don't have a perspective of history. And it's been exacerbated over the last 50 years because the textbooks that are used to teach history, because history doesn't have meaning under uh, modernism and postmodernism, these writers can just impose their view on history and use it as a propaganda tool. And it's not always what is said in the his- history textbooks. It's what's not said. It's their misrepresenta- misrepresentation of facts in order to, to promote their agenda of socialism or Marxism or humanism. And because of their false view of the separation of church and state, which means that the Bible or religion has nothing whatever to say about what is going on in day-to-day life. They exclude uh, people's religious beliefs from being a causative factor in the events of history. And so people are taught a false view of what happened and why it happened because they don't understand the religious motivations of the people who were active in history. And that, on the positive side, that affects the founders uh, and the colonists in the early uh, American colonies as well as the founders of the American Republic because they were deeply and profoundly shaped by their understanding of the Bible and their understanding of what the Bible taught about freedom, about individual responsibility, and about government and the limitations of government. And if you exclude that from the conversation, you're really talking about meaningless things. You can't organize your thoughts around the real issue. And on the negative side, you have a secular environment today that goes so far as to deny religious motivation, and you have this, this, I'm not going to use that word, guy in the White House and his administration who when they respond to these 21 Coptic Christians who were executed uh, in Libya by by ISIS uh, over the weekend, that they exclude the fact that they're Christians. They just refer to them, they were executed because they were Egyptian citizens. They weren't executed because they were Egyptian citizens. They were ex- executed by the Christians. But see, they can't bring themselves to identify that Islam, whether it's, a true version of Islam or a distorted version of Islam. Nevertheless, ISIS is motivated by their understanding of the Quran and their understanding of, of, of Islam. It is motivated by their religious belief, but they can't admit that either. So they can't admit that because they can't admit that, that the causative factor here is religious. They can't admit that and identify the victims as being uh, victims because they were Christians. So as a result of that, they have a totally distorted view of what is going on. And how can a president and an administration that has their head buried in the ground so deeply to deny looking at reality make correct decisions? Their decisions will always be incorrect because they can't identify the problem, not even to themselves. They're in such denial. And so... This is the kind of thing that we see in Judges and in Samuel that's the result of paganism. It's a result of rejecting the, the, the truth of the Scripture. And if you don't understand history from divine viewpoint, then you can't uh, properly understand what has been going on. 
So we live in an era that has rejected the meaning in history, and the significance of history is the outworking of God's plan and purpose. And history is their view of history is based on modern, what is defined by some as secular humanism. Others, it's the it came into play in the 19th century during the waning years of what was known as modernism, which was which was the uh, child of the Enlightenment, teaching that. Uh, everything we can learn about mankind and about the world and about society can be learned through pure empiricism in combination with rationalism with the exclusion of revelation. And because they exclude revelation, they can, they can observe some things that are true, but their framework's always going to be false. And the best illustration that I can use for this is what took place in the Garden of Eden. God created a perfect environment for Adam and Eve. And they were to name all the animals, and they were to explore and develop all the resources that God gave them. He told them that he gave them everything in the garden. That doesn't mean everything outside the garden, but everything in the garden for food. And it was good for them. But there was one thing they couldn't do. Now, the one thing they couldn't do, they couldn't learn about that through observation and experimentation. They couldn't think their way through that to that conclusion just on the basis of of uh, of their of their reason and the right use of logic. And that is that one tree was prohibited and if you ate of that tree you would die spiritually instantly. They couldn't get there through empiricism or rationalism. Now that didn't mean that they couldn't learn a lot of things through empirical observation or through the use of reason and logic. But what would give proper order and organization to their reason and to their observations was this one fact that they could only learn from revelation. And that's what I mean when we say that revelation has to control our observation and our reason. And that has an important application as I'm talking about history is that when the Bible starts giving us history in the first uh, historical books uh, that we refer to as historical books, the former prophets, Joshua and Judges, what are they preceded by? Are they preceded by history or are they preceded by revelation? Revelation in terms of Torah, in terms of instruction. And it's the revelation of the Torah in the first five books of, of, of the uh, Old Testament that gives them the the data points to be able to properly interpret history because the history that they see from Joshua on comes out of what is uh, included and revealed in the Mosaic Law. Without that, they don't have the tools to properly interpret history. And the primary most obvious tool of which would be what? We've gone through this so much. I'm hitting it from a different angle. Leviticus 26 the blessings that God promises Israel if they're obedient and the five stages of divine discipline, the five cycles of discipline that God's going to bring on on Israel if they're disobedient. That is the framework for really understanding Joshua. Joshua is the conquest generation that's obedient to God, and God is giving them victory and expansion, and they are... Uh, they're always spoken of in, in generally in positive terms all through the book of Joshua. But then when you get into the book of Judges, they start falling apart as a result of compromise. They start falling apart because they, they don't want to carry out those, uh, from a human viewpoint perspective, those, those regulations that God establishes in holy war that every uh, man, woman, child, sheep, goat, cow, that the Canaanites own has to be slaughtered. And they don't understand the why they won't trust God. I talked about this Sunday morning. We often say why. If we don't get an answer to why, then we're not going to do it. But God says, you don't need the an- if you trust me, you don't need the answer to why, and I'm not going to tell you. It, why, why should you do it? Because I said so. I'm God. You don't need to know why. You just trust me and do what I say. And so Israel failed to do that. And we see that in the second generation after the conquest, they began to compromise more and more. And that's the beginning of the story or the episode that begins at the beginning of, uh, of Judges. So what we see here as we get into these, these books of history 
is that they are, in a sense, a theologized or editorialized view of history. We're not told everything that happened, but we're given the representative facts that happened, and they are woven together under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, to teach us what the causative effects of history are. And the causative effects in history are not what you can discover in, this, in uh, the sociological observations or in the in, in the class uh, or in the laboratory. Sociology goes out and conducts a whole lot of surveys and collects a whole lot of data and then comes to conclusions, but they leave out the most important aspects. It's like going into the Garden of Eden and coming out with a with a printout. That's, that's 10,000 pages long with all the data about all the animals and all the trees, but you're missing the most significant point, which is there's one tree that's going to be the source of spiritual death. And so you have people go out and they're analyzing society, what makes society work, what makes government work, all of these different things, but they're leaving out the important points, and that's what God revealed. And so we have to understand that God's revelation related to uh, personal responsibility, divine institution number one. Marriage, divine institution number two. Family, divine institution number three. Human government, especially in, in these uh, these books. Human government, divine institution number four. And then uh, national distinctions, divine institution number five, are social social constructs. They are social institutions that God built into the warp and woof of, of human history and of the human race and human society. So that if you if you break down those things, then you're going to break down and destroy the culture that doesn't um, that doesn't fulfill those things. And we're seeing evidence of that uh, today. So when it comes to history, to write history, you have to have three things. You always have three things, no matter who's writing, no matter how pagan there are, there's three things that are, need to be there. Meaning, meaning, purpose, and goal. What is the meaning of history? Now, if you are a humanist, an evolutionist, then you basically have to end up saying that history is meaningless because life is meaningless because we're just all the accidental result of some mass of protoplasm that had an electrical charge. And there's no value, there's no, no meaning to that. So, so history is meaningless. The events of history are meaningless. They're, they're just random data points. That's why kids get bored in schools. They don't understand that it has meaning and significance. That uh, history has purpose. Not only has meaning, but it has purpose. God is doing something in history. God is allowing things to happen in history at a national or macro level. And he's allowing things to happen in your, the history of your life and my life that are designed to teach us how to walk with him on a consistent basis. And then there's a goal. History, biblical Christian history, means that history, we believe history is moving to an ultimate destination. That's why um, in Marxism, Marxism also believes that history is going in a direction. There's uh, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis that he borrowed from uh, Hegel. And and so it keeps moving. Then there's a new thesis and an antithesis and then a new synthesis. And it's always, but it's moving in a in a direction towards a goal, in which case the uh, proletariat will eventually all share in the wealth of, the, uh, of, of everything. And that's Marxism. But that's why it's called the Christian heresy, because he perverted a linear view of history that, that comes from Christianity. All other pagan systems have cyclical views of history, or it's just things that are flat. They don't move linear. Linear came from, from the Old Testament, came from Judeo-Christian history. It was the Jews that first produced history. Now, if you went to school and you got an education that was wrong, you were taught that it was the Greeks that were the first historians. But the Greeks didn't come along till the 600s to the 6th century, 5th century B.C., Thucydides and Herodotus, and they're basically chroniclers. The writers of Joshua and Judges preceded them by a 1,000 years. They were writing real history because real history is not just reporting what happened, but it is assigning a pattern. It's assigning meaning and purpose and goal to what happened. 
And so you don't just look at history as random facts, one damn thing after another. You look at it as the outworking of the plan and purpose of God. History is his story. So we, <clears throat> when we look at it from a biblical viewpoint, we have a specific meaning to history. God has supplied that meaning and that it is related to the uh, angelic rebellion, the angelic conflict, and it is related to God's resolution of that, the defeat of Satan and the reclamation of planet Earth from the dominion of Satan after Adam lost it to reinstate the second Adam upon the throne of God so that the second Adam is uh, the true man who will reach the ultimate destiny of man as defined in Genesis 1, uh, 26 to 28, that man is to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the animals of the field. So that that, that is its purpose. So it's moving in a direction. So that tells us that only Christians, only people who literally understand the Bible, can properly interpret and understand history. And it gives us the tools, as we go through these books, it gives us the tools to not only understand the what happened and the why it happened in the Old Testament, but it helps us then to see the what is happening, what is really happening today, and why it's happening today, and what the end results of that are going to be. We live in a generation that is so arrogant, they think that, that, that hundreds of generations that have preceded us have always come to the same conclusion, but we are so much better and so much more educated and so much more advanced educationally and technologically that it's not going to happen to us. Socialism may have failed every time it's been tried, but it's going to work for us because we're better. We're Americans. We're educated. We went to Harvard. We went to Yale. We went to Princeton. It's not going to fail for us like it did for every, everybody else. So Christians have a unique perspective on history, and that's why Christians should love history. I can tell you how many people that I've talked to over the years who said that they used to hate history, but once they became a Christian and started studying the Bible, they learned to love history, and they loved reading about history and understanding the meaning and purpose of history. So we have to understand as we get into Samuel we have to understand a couple of things. The first thing I want us to understand has to do with thought and what's happened historically in relation to how history has been destroyed over the last 200 years. You've seen this before, not in a while. We're going to start this way. We live in a world that is filled with all kinds of details. Immanuel Kant called it phenomena. We have all kinds of details. We have observable, observable phenomena. We can observe people. We can observe things. We can observe events, and we can observe language. Language is really important in this because language is where the battle is being fought today. We can observe language. Now, how do we organize the data about people? In human viewpoint, we look at it in terms of sociology, in, in things, uh, we look at it in terms of science, and that's all taught and understood within an evolutionary framework. When it comes to events, that's history. When it comes to language, that's linguistic theory and meaning, and eventually that uh, becomes hermeneutics and interpretation. Now, we're going to take all those details, all the specifics that we see in life, and we're going to put them in a house. We're going to put them downstairs, and they're in what we'll call the lower story. And the lower story are all the details of life. Now, this house has two stories. And in this part of the diagram, I've made the upper story white because that's the realm of light. And remember what the psalmist said, in thy light I see light. What that means is only in the light of God's revelation are we illuminated as to what is going on in the world around us. We can only see truth once we understand God's truth and God's absolutes. So upstairs is the realm of universals, what Immanuel Kant called the noumena. And this is the area that is dominated by the creator God. And I've 
I don't put God there. I put the Creator God because everything in creation is what it is because God made it that way. That's why the doctrine of creation is so vital. If you throw out Genesis 1 and the doctrine of a Creator God who creates the way the Bible says, you've you've destroyed everything from Genesis 2 to Revelation 22 no longer has a foundation. Because once you throw out God, you have to throw out good. Once you throw out good, you have to throw out evil because you can't have... Uh, you know, you can't have opposites. If you don't have good, you can't have its opposite. You can't ha- talk about evil. You talk to unbelievers, and unbelievers will say, well, how do you explain evil? You ought to respond by saying, how can you talk about evil? Because you, ha- you can't have evil if you don't have good, and you can't have good if you don't have God. So you can't even talk about evil if you don't have God. Real simple. So... God is up there in the upper story, and this is the realm of meaning that should have come up first. This is the realm of meaning because it's that light upstairs that illuminates downstairs. So we don't understand the observable phenomena in terms of meaning unless we have the light of God. We don't understand people and sociology. We don't understand uh, the systems and politics is part of sociology. We can't properly understand it. We can, pro- we can get some facts right, but we can't get the framework right if we don't have the upper story in place. We can't understand things. If, uh, and, and that's science. If we don't have the upper story to give meaning to it, we can't understand events or history or language. You can't have a proper view of language so that what something meant in 1789 in the Constitution can't be understood if you don't have an absolute view of language in 2015. This is a good time to read this. I have here, this is on the letterhead of the Supreme Court of Alabama, which I think, some who gave this to me last week? Somebody gave this to me. And it's signed by Roy Moore, Chief Justice of Alabama Supreme Court, and it's dated January 27, 2015. This just shows the the harsh contrast between divine viewpoint, absolute thinking, and human viewpoint thinking. And he writes to the governor of Alabama, uh, the Honorable Robert Bentley, and says, uh, Dear Governor Bentley, the recent ruling of Judge Callie Grenada, I guess is how you pronounce it, the United States District Court for the Southern District of Alabama, has raised serious legitimate concerns about the propriety of federal court jurisdiction over the Alabama Sanctity of Marriage Amendment, and he cites that of, of, uh, based on the Alabama Constitution 1901. Now, the point that he's making there is that we, we live our lives on the basis of the rule of law, and the law is a code of absolutes. So he goes on and he says, as you know, nothing in the United States Constitution grants the federal government the authority to redefine the institution of marriage. Now, there are a lot of conservatives who think that these social issues should are irrelevant. We just have to focus on conservative principles of economics. But the Bible says that if you don't get your, socio- your social principles right, i.e. the divine institutions, then the economics are going to fall apart. Because if marriage is breaking down and divorce is rampant, then you're destroying wealth over and over again and forcing hundreds of single moms into poverty and welfare simply because you have a bad moral system that is creating this this kind of situation. And so bad morals, bad social theory ends up with bad economics. So he recognizes that the institution of marriage is something that is above and beyond the the, uh, role of the federal government to define. He said, the people of this state have specifically recognized in our Constitution that marriage is a sacred covenant solemnized between a man and a woman, that marriage contracted between individuals of the same sex is invalid in this state, and that union replicating marriage of or between persons of the same sex shall be considered and treated in all respects as having no legal force or effect in this state. Now, where do you think they got that? They, they're not going to get that from empiricism. He's, they're basing that on, on law and legal precedent, but that legal precedent ultimately is grounded in something that is beyond law. He says the Supreme Court of Alabama has likewise described marriage as a divine institution. 
How do you like that? So much for separation of church and state because that's a false concept. They describe marriage as a divine institution imposing upon the parties, quote, higher moral and religious obligation than those imposed by any mere human institution or government. And then he cites the court case for that, Hughes versus Hughes in 1870 and Smith versus Smith in 1904, that the court also in that second case referred to marriage as a, quote, sacred relation. So that's the law of the state. He says the laws of the state have always recognized the biblical admonition stated by our Lord, quote, but from the beginning of the creation God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Twain is the not the noise that a bowstring makes on a bow, but the old English for two. They two shall be one flesh, so then they are no more twain but one flesh, what well, therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Mark 10, 6-9. Then he goes on to say, Even the United States Supreme Court has repeatedly recognized that the basic foundation of marriage and family upon which our country rests is, quote, the union for life of one man and one woman in the holy, see, holy estate. That's in, in, that's in the legal documentation, the court records. Holy is a biblical term. It is a religious term. Uh, in the holy estate of matrimony, the sure foundation of all that is stable and noble in our civilization, the best guarantee of that reverent, reverent. Where do you get that idea? It's not in, you know, just pure secularism. That comes from a biblical worldview. That the best guarantee of that reverent mora- morality, which is the source of all beneficent progress and social and political involvement, and that's cited as Murphy versus Ramsey in 1885, quoted in United States versus Biddy in 1908. Today the destruction of that institution is upon us by federal courts using specious pretexts based on the equal protection, due process, and full faith and credit clause of the United States Constitution. See what they're doing is over here in the realm of language, they're going to make language mean whatever they want it to mean coming out of the Constitution. So it no longer means what it says on the surface. They're going to try to use this and twist it to their ends. More rights as of this date, 44 federal courts have imposed by judicial fiat same-sex marriages in 21 states of the Union, overturning the express will of the people in those states. If we're to preserve that, quote, reverent morality, which is our source of all beneficent progress and social and political improvement, close quote, then we must act to oppose such tyranny. And he then quotes Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson. He says on December 26, 1825, Thomas Jefferson wrote, this is a great quote, I see as you do and with the deepest affection, he's writing to William Branch Giles, he says, I see as you do and with the deepest affliction the rapid strides with which the federal branch of our government, this is in 1825, not 2015, the federal branch of our government is advancing towards the usurpation of all the rights reserved to the states and the consolidation in itself of all powers foreign and domestic, and that too by constructions which, if legitimate, leave no limits to their power. Take together the decisions of the federal court, the doctrines of the president, and the misconstructions of the constitutional compact, that is the U.S. Constitution, acted on by the legislature of the federal branch, and it is but too evident that the three ruling branches of that department are in combination to strip their colleagues, the states, the state authorities of the powers reserved by them and to exercise themselves all functions, foreign and domestic. See, this has been going on since day one in federal government. Federal government seeking to suck up all the power away from the states. But as he will go on to point out, this is, violates the Tenth Amendment. More writes, Jefferson's words precisely express my sentiments on this occasion. Our state constitution and our morality are under attack by a federal court decision that has no basis in the Constitution of the United States. Nothing in the United States Constitution grants to the federal government the authority to desecrate the institution of marriage. Indeed, the Tenth Amendment of the Bill of Rights, Tenth Amendment states, the powers not delegated to the United States, that's the federal government, by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. In other words, if it's not specifically said to be the responsibility of the federal government, it isn't. It goes to the states. 
That's the Constitution. That should be the absolute law of the land. He goes on to say, I'm encouraged by the Alabama Probate Judges Association. That's the probate judges in Alabama, which advise probate judges to follow Alabama law in refusing to license marriages between two members of the same sex. So, see, this isn't just Roy Moore just running off because he doesn't like something and telling everybody don't obey the federal government. This was in accord with the Alabama Probate Judges Association and based on the law of the state of Alabama. He goes on, however, I am dismayed by those judges in our state who have stated that they will recognize and unilaterally enforce a federal court decision which does not bind them. See, this court decision doesn't bind the states. We have to understand the law. That's the point that he's making. He said, I would advise them that the issuance of such licenses would be in defiance of the laws and constitution of Alabama. Moreover, I note that, quote, United States District Court decisions are not controlling authority in this court. And he cites uh, the case of Dolgan Corp. Inc. versus Taylor, which was in Alabama of 2009, and also Ex parte Johnson, which was a court decision in Alabama in 2008. They quote, this court is not bound by decisions of the United States Courts of Appeals or the United States District Courts. So this is the basis for his decision. He understands the concept of absolutes. But when you live in a country that has abdicated a view of absolutes, then not even the Constitution or law becomes absolute. You have already lost the territory, and you're no longer living on a country that is can follow the rule of law because in relativism, law itself becomes relative. So... This upper story is the realm of universals like values and morals and ideas, what is right and what is wrong. But after Immanuel Kant, he said, you don't know truth as it is. You only know your perception of truth. So with Immanuel Kant, nobody in the lower story downstairs could see the upstairs. And so it looked like this. There's a brick wall. The staircase can't get you upstairs. You can't go up to the top and find God or find meaning to get downstairs. There are two separate realms that don't communicate with each other. You can't know truth. Truth is relative. You can't know truth as it is. You can only know your perception of truth. And so they always trot out this illustration of the blind men who are um, who are uh, feeling an elephant. And one person says it's a tree because he's feeling the legs. Another person says, no, you're wrong. It's like a wall because he's feeling the side. Another person says, no, it's like a snake because he's feeling the trunk, and, 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 uh, and so on. And so they're all wrong because they, can't ha- they don't have an absolute, i.e., they can't see what they're actually looking at. And so w- once you buy into Kantian, uh, a Kantian perspective that there's no truth, then there's no God, there's no meaning, You're just left in a hopeless state of existential despair and nihilism. That's the ultimate goal. So the only thing that you can do to to escape that existential despair is to just go party. Give total vent to your lust patterns and everything that you think makes you feel good and makes you happy because ultimately that's the only joy there'll ever be. It's depressing. But that's the first part of the good news, and as Christians, we need to understand that. That's the first part of the good news. You've got to know you're lost before you can understand real hope and salvation. Now, when we look at, look at the Bible, the Bible gives us an accurate view of history. We have to understand this, this framework. So we have the, the Old Testament period. We start off with the Exodus in 1446. And then 40 years in the wilderness, which is actually 38 plus the year in um, uh, at Mount Sinai. So it's uh, and and then they enter into the land. They take a year from Kadesh, that area of the wilderness, to travel across to uh, Mount Nebo, and finally entering into the land. So the t- the total from the Exodus to the entry is 40 years, but they've got about 38 years in the middle when they're wandering around in the desert. Um, Barren. We went there on the last trip to Israel. It was sort of retracing those steps. This period, this green shaded area here from 1406 to 1399 is seven years that roughly covers the conquest. Then you have this period, uh, 
of the first generation after the conquest generation of relativism and compromise sets in from 1399 to 1360 with the first judge, uh, Othniel. And then you have approximately 300 years to 1051 when Saul becomes king when you have this period of the judges. And so remember, it's about with the birth of Samuel's about 1100, just 1104, 1105. So that's clearly right in this period of the judges. Now, when we look at the end of the period of the judges, the last two judges in the book of Judges are Jephthah and Samson. Jephthah is the one who offers his daughter as a living burnt offering, burns her alive as an offering to God, a pagan idea because he's, he's, he doesn't know enough doctrine to know different. He's, he's grown up outside of Israel because his mother was a prostitute and they, he was excluded from the land. But he's a believer. And God called him and, and gave him uh, uh, the endowment of the Holy Spirit to lead Israel in victory. The endowment of the Holy Spirit doesn't guarantee uh, that he's error-free or that he's spiritually mature or anything else. He just gave him military power. And then in, in uh, the book of, of uh, Samuel, we'll run into the... Um, corpulent Eli, who just lets his kids run wild and they're priests and they're, they're literally raping the women in Israel when they come to worship at the temple, I mean at the tabernacle. And then Samuel, who is going to, uh, restore honor to the, uh, and, and held the office of prophet and restore honor to the priesthood. This will be followed by the United Monarchy, Saul, then David, and then Solomon. That's our framework for understanding this part, this part of the Old Testament. So now here's in this chart we see how this overlaps as we go to the end period of the judges. This is a period when they are the way the Jews are living in the land is not you can't tell them apart from the Canaanites. What they are doing shows the end results of paganism, the abuse of women. Jephthah burns his daughter alive. Samson is a womanizer. This is a result of the cultural influence of paganism on, on even the, the, the spiritual leaders of Israel. So we have Jephthah, whose dates are 1150 to 1100. Notice Samson is born when Jephthah uh, is about 25 years old. He's, uh, he's a little bit less than that. He's about 20, or a little bit more than that. He's about 20, uh, 22 years old uh, when, when Samson's born. And notice then Samuel is born some eight years later. So he's, he's like... Um, what, 27? Uh, 27 when, um, yeah, 27 when Samson's born, and eight years later he'd be 35 when, Sam, when uh, Samuel's born. Excuse me, I misspoke, when Samuel's born. So Samuel is growing up and reaches uh, his maturity while Jephthah is still alive. That's what's fascinating to watch these things and break them down and to see those correlations. Samson is, is still alive. Uh, much into Samuel's adulthood. Samson's down there in the, um, uh, as a prisoner in the temple of Dagon. So this is what's going on in the background. You have the Ammonite oppression under Jephthah that comes in from the uh, Transjordan area from modern Jordan. Am, um, the capital of modern Jordan is Ammon, which comes from the term for the Ammonites. Those are cognates. And then you have the Philistine oppression going on in the southeast down along the Gaza Strip. So we're talking about problems with the Gaza Strip and problems with, with Jordan. Some things don't change a whole lot over, the time, over history. This gives you perspective. Um, so then we have Saul, born around 1084. He becomes king around 1050, 1051. Major battles are down here at the bottom, the Battle of Aphek, where the where God basically says to Israel, I'm not leaving you for good, but right now you're so carnal, I'm out of here. I'm gone. I'm going to go mess, mess with the Philistines' gods for a while. 
And then you have the Battle of, uh, of Mizpah in uh, 1084, which is about the time of, of Saul's verse, and that's described in 1 Samuel 7, 11, uh, which is when uh, you have the uh, statement about Ebenezer, and it's after that that they're going to come to Israel for a, I mean, Israel is going to come to Samuel and reject God as their king. So one last little chart here. We'll come back to this. In the era of Joshua and the contest uh, and the conquest, the spiritual trend is that this is the great work of Yahweh. He's going to give them the land of Canaan and they're going to defeat because they trust God. They're going to defeat the Canaanites and conquer the land. And they are going to serve God as they were called to. And it's only when we trust in God that we're enabled to serve God, and then God is going to bless us. And they lived in a time of rich blessing. Then we have the next generation, which are the elders after, after Joshua, and they have the memory of Yahweh's great work. And they remember it, and they serve Yahweh. But then the days after the surviving witnesses begins to disappear, then the people get away from God. They don't know his great work. They forget it because it's not passed on as they were told to from one generation to the next, and they don't serve God. And once that happens, we get into this whole uh, cycle of deterioration in the judges. And they're going to go through this several times, disobedience, and then God is going to bring discipline upon them in accord with the uh, five cycles of discipline, and then they're going to turn back to God and repent and cry out for a deliverer. Then God will deliver them, and then within a generation they're going to disobey God again. It goes through this cycle again and again and again throughout that particular period. And the basic problem is Judges 17.6 and 18.1 state it precisely. In those days, there was no king in Israel, no ultimate authority. It's not talking about just the monarchy. God was supposed to be their king, the ultimate authority. There was no king in Israel. What's the consequence? You take God out of the picture, then the only source of absolutes is the individual human being. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, moral relativism. Judges 18.1 restates it verbatim. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in. And that just becomes a horrible situation. And Judges 19.1 says, it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel. The focal point of Judges is when they rejected God as their king, then all hell broke loose on earth. Now, we could paraphrase this, just something for you to take home and think about. Let's paraphrase these verses. In those days, there was no constitution in Israel. No absolute respect for the law of the land. Because when you take God out, you take out the source of absolutes. And that's why we're living in a time when we can shift the constitution into a, into a living document that is going to mean something completely different for every generation before long. It doesn't just mean that something different for every generation. It's something different for every human being. So the constitution... What the Constitution means by freedom of speech to one person doesn't fit for somebody else. And once you reach that stage, then somebody's got to come along and redefine what's acceptable speech. And that's why you start getting legislation like hate speech legislation, because they're, they're redefining everything to create tools eventually to be used against citizens who aren't conforming to the politically correct notions of the powers that be. And so that's where we are today. And that's where Israel was. It was a time of hopelessness, a time of economic uh, uh, despair, a time of moral uh, relativism, a time when the, there, there didn't seem that there would, they would be able to survive. They were just about to fragment into oblivion, but God. And that's the same thing in our lives. When things get bad, and unfortunately we let them get bad, but the only solution, the only foundation for stability is God and walking by him. And when we walk in obedience to the Lord and walking in obedience to the word, then we can have stability. And that's the only source of stability. That's what made America great. That's what gave America prosperity. 
that's what get, that doesn't mean we did everything right, and that doesn't mean there weren't problems that needed to be addressed. But ultimately, for over 300 years, from the uh, colonization of the North American continent in the early uh, 1600s, I know it went back into the 1500s, but with Jamestown and, and the growth of the uh, Puritans in the 1620s, the Pilgrims in 1620s, this developed from the 1600s through the mid-1900s. And then it crumbled because of what happened in the 1800s. And the only way we're going to go back is a return to the foundation, but I don't think that'll happen. And the only way we're going to survive is if we've got the Word of God in our soul, which means we've got to be here all the time, listening all the time, putting the Word in our soul, because when things get really bad, that's the only thing we're going to have is what's in our soul. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study this evening, and even though it's not pleasant, it's not optimistic, it's true. It's not any different from that which was proclaimed by the prophets in Israel in the Old Testament, pointing people to the problems, the irreversible negatives of the day, and presenting the fact that the only real hope, the only source of strength and stability is our walk with you. And that starts at the cross when we trust in Christ as Savior and continues as we walk by the Holy Spirit filling our souls with the Word of God so that we can truly have optimism, hope in everyday life despite the negatives around us because we know that you're in control and we are just a a, a scout team, a reconnaissance team, a team of those who are proclaiming the truth as ambassadors from the high court of heaven to the world around us and that we need to have this kind of an eternal perspective because we're just here for a short time with a short mission defined by Scripture. And as long as we keep our focus on that, we have real happiness, stability, hope, positive uh, mentality, optimism based on the truth of of your word and not on the circumstances of life. And we pray that you challenge us with these things. And as we study, give us uh, the insight to uh, be able to judge the circumstances and the trends of the day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.